The Happy Pair podcast is sponsored by Instant Brand and they're offering you 20% off their full price items until the end of February. Simply use the code HAPPYPAIR. Click the link below in our show notes. Today, we're thrilled to welcome the formidable Elizabeth Day, best-selling author, award-winning journalist, and the empathetic voice behind the hit podcast, How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. Ironically, she's taken the subject of failure and made a phenomenal success of it. Yeah, she's a best-selling author of nine books, um, some fiction, some non-fiction. And really, in this conversation, we uncover the insights of a woman who teaches us that sometimes it's through our missteps that we truly find our way. Some of the topics we cover are criticism and how best to deal with it. She talks about having a number of miscarriages and just having the courage to publicly talk about it and what that resulted in. She's really leaned into failure over the last six years and on her podcast interviewed incredible guests of huge sex success and notoriety and really via their failures is where we really uncover so much of who we are and what life is about. This is an incredible episode that will leave you smiling from ear to ear. She's a beautiful woman. You'll really, really enjoy this. Elizabeth has a new book coming out called Friendaholic. We do talk about it later in the podcast and it's fascinating. She is going on a book tour and she will be in our wonderful city or local city called Dublin on March 13th in the National Concert Hall. So there's a link if you're interested in the show notes. Uh, well, it's it's a real pleasure to have you. It really, really is. Yeah, thanks. And congrats on everything once again. Thank you so much. You're so lovely. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. Well, may, maybe that's the place to, to jump off because I noticed like I've I've really enjoyed listening to you over the last number of days and even the last week reading about you and listening to you. And uh, I've noticed gratitude, like you're very good. And I don't know if you've consciously cultivated gratitude, but I've realized as someone who's like, you know, you your, your failure message is so front and center. Yet underneath it, I've really noticed that gratitude, like you're very good at, you know, saying things and consistently reinforcing gratitude. Is that something you've consciously had to lean into or... What are, you, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on gratitude? What a beautiful first question. And I've never been asked that before. Um, I haven't consciously lent into it. I am genuinely so grateful. And I think it's one of those things of knowing, I know in my bones how life could have turned out. And the genesis of how to fail was because my life wasn't going according to the plan that I thought I had set myself, which is being happily married, having kids, having a very conventional, boring, heteronormative life in many ways. But in my mid-30s, that totally imploded and I'd married the wrong person. I got divorced and I tried and failed to have the babies that I'd yearned for. And I went through unsuccessful fertility treatment and then another relationship ended. And I kind of kidded myself that I'd made the right decisions and made different decisions with the new relationship. But I hadn't really because I wasn't being honest about myself and I wasn't being honest about the things that I had got wrong and the things that I wish were different. And so I'm very grateful because it could so easily have gone the other way. And I think the fact that I've had, ironically, the success that I've had with How to Fail, I am aware of that irony that a podcast about failure has become one of the most successful things I've ever done. But I'm very aware that it couldn't, it could have gone another way entirely. And I had had a whole other career, as well as a personal life that had been slightly derailed, I'd also had a whole other career in that time as well, in that I'd been a print journalist and I'd always wanted to write novels and I'd written the first couple of novels. Um, but I felt kind of trapped by that and I didn't feel completely fulfilled by my career as a print journalist. And I didn't feel that it was my purpose. And so I suppose I'd had the experience of 
of putting things out there that not that many people had engaged with. So, <laughs> you know, my I'm very proud of my books, but not that many people read my first couple of novels. And I know that because when the podcast became a success, people were like, oh, you're a writer. I was like, yeah, been doing that for years. Um, and so I'm, I know what it's like to have no one... It, to it, for it to feel like no one cares about what you're putting out there. And I remember book events that I used to do and four people would turn up and there'd be four people on the panel. So we were almost out numbering with the chairperson, the audience. And I think that's where a lot of my gratitude comes from is that I, I know how hard it is and I'm so grateful that now there's this community who allow me to show up as myself because that's really at the root of my journey is that Part of my feelings of failure came from placing unrealistic expectations on who I thought I should be, rather than being able to embrace the flaws and the imperfections of who I really am. So to have this community who enabled me to do that, I'm I'm perpetually grateful. So I think it's all of those things wrapped up. But I, I am aware that it's a healthy attribute at the same time. I would hate anyone ever to feel that I take any of it for granted because I've experienced that feeling on a personal level of someone not seeing you and someone taking you for granted. And I never want to make anyone feel like that. I want I want people to feel seen and that they're a really big part of what we're building together. Yeah, yeah. get it. Totally get it. There generally isn't a day that goes by that I don't use an instant appliance, whether it's my instant Vortex air fryer or whether it's an instant pot itself. I use them every day because they save me time and they're quick and easy and efficient. Um, so much so that we've partnered with them now and they're offering you 20% off their full price items until the end of February. Simply use the code HAPPYPAIR. They also have a number of other products on special when you check out their website. They really are amazing. Great time-saving kitchen appliance as well worth checking out. Like one, one thing that like my wife's a psychologist and she'll often say when a child is born, it has two many needs, but two primarily needs. One is the need to belong and two is to be themselves. And often many people will not be themselves with the desire to belong. And then that yes. carries through their life. And it sounds like the first chapter of before you started this, how, you know, your failure, I shouldn't journey. call it your failure, your journey with how, how, to, how to fail or how not to fail. Yeah. Um, your journey with that, it sounds like you wanted to belong more so than be yourself. Would you see that as accurate? A hundred percent accurate. I love that you're married to a psychologist. My best friend is a therapist and it's just oh, yeah, one yeah. of the key, the key relationships in my life. Um, uh, totally. I cannot tell you how much I identify with that. And it's partly because I grew up in the north of Ireland. We moved out to Derry when I was four. My dad, he's retired now, but he was a surgeon and he got a job there and we had a slight family connection with Belfast. And he got a job there and we spent the next sort of 20 odd years there. And as you can hear, I speak with a very English accent and I never picked up an Irish accent. I had a slight lilt. I don't know what that was about. Your wife would probably have an interesting theory about what that was about. But I never fitted in, even though that small village outside Derry was my home. We would be stopped constantly at military checkpoints and and the soldier would say, oh, are you on holiday? Where, and we'd have to be like, no, we live here. And then they'd be sort of slightly suspicious of us because we weren't military. And, and it was such a traumatic time for that part of the world. The 70s, 80s, 90s, bombs were still going off at weekends in shopping centres that I would go to. I mean, I got very used to that. And I think the Air Force 
or not only did I not fit in, but I felt scared not fitting in because I felt that speaking with an English accent marked me out, not only as an outsider, but in some territories, like the enemy. And it didn't feel safe to speak as myself. And I think I internalized that very, very deeply. And my primary school was lovely in Derry. I went to foil prep, shout out to foil prep. And then I went to secondary school in Belfast, which was less of a healthy experience. And I didn't have a particularly good time because I was making the mistake of trying so hard to fit in, but also not understanding who I was and not understanding what I was doing wrong. And I never did fit in there. And then when I went to a new school, so I got to a scholar, I got a scholarship to a boarding school in England Went to boarding school in England. I hadn't grown up there, but immediately I was accepted because I spoke with the right voice. And yeah. I think it took me a really long time to disentangle the difference between true belonging, where you are accepted as you really are, and fitting in where you change yourself because you think that you'll be accepted. <laughs> and, and that lasted into my 20s and 30s, and it, and it really polluted a lot of my relationships. But now... In my 40s, I totally understand the difference. And you're right that now I feel like I I have a space where I belong. Yeah, yeah. It really is that conflict for us all. It's, yeah, so, and it's something think... that we all battle with in every moment. There are moments when it's like, no, no, I want to be nice and I want the person to like me, but it's I, got, I gotta say this hard thing that's gonna upset them. You know, that way it's it's I, yes. I see it as a constant. It's not like I've arrived. I think it's a journey, you know. Totally. And then it's like, well you're thinking about what the other person might want. But I took that to such an extreme in my 20s and early 30s that I wouldn't even ask the other person what they wanted. I would project what I thought they wanted from my own position of limited knowledge. The total pleaser. You were the total pleaser on steroids. Exactly. Exactly. And then I would seek to meet that projected desire and I would contort myself and completely forget what I wanted. There were points in my life I just, I honestly just didn't know what I would want. Right down to like a partner asked me, I remember this so vividly, an ex-boyfriend was like, should we go for lunch? I was like, I don't know, do you want to? It's like, yeah, where do you want to go? I was like, I don't mind. Like, where do you want to eat? And it was just constant. Ooh. And really that's a betrayal of yourself. Totally. And not only is it a betrayal of yourself, but you're not showing up as yourself to your loved ones. So it's kind of a betrayal of them too, even though you think you're being There's so kind of selfless. an emptiness there. There's kind of an em- a vacuousness where it's kind of like, come on, where are you? Let's, let's. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. And what, 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 what were the major, like, cause uh, what were the major events? Like, was it the, the, fa- your, the depths of your failures and reaching where you were forced into the darker places of your soul? Like, what were the events that catalyzed this, blooming and blossoming into this incredibly confident, you know, self, you know, the, the woman which you are today, mm. which is, you know, a really glorious expression of you. Oh, thank you for saying that. Confidence is such an interesting one because I have historically had a real problem with low self-esteem. But the older I get, the more I realize that practice and flexing that internal muscle of pretending that you're confident has an amazingly positive effect because because if you if you don't feel it but you're sort of pretending it your body gets used to what that must feel like and then you gradually become more confident and more resilient and i think also the amount of hours i've i've done what i've done so i've done it's that malcolm gladwell thing of like 10,000 hours makes you an expert that's the great privilege of age is that i feel like i've done enough writing now and i've done enough podcasting that I can trust myself that I know what I'm doing. So that feeds into the confidence too. 
And then I think the key moments, I definitely feel my childhood in Ireland was a, a key moment that I only really understood the importance of it relatively recently. And it was partly because Jamie Dornan came on How to Fail and he had been to the same school in Belfast. We He's a bit younger than I am, but his sister was in my year and he had had such a similar experience. And we were able to talk about the weirdness of growing up in the North of Ireland at that specific time. And it made me feel so much less weird in myself. And so that was huge for me, understanding the impact that that childhood had. And then I think the other two major catalysts, one was heartbreak. <laughs> so I don't know how many times you two have been through heartbreak, but I think I've had six major heartbreaks in my life. Wow. And they are, I know I'm a right old slut. Is that what well, you might, No, no, I mean, <laughs> no, you describe yourself I mean, as a serial. I mean, where that you put your heart out to that degree and that yes. you've had that many. That's more what I'm saying. Yeah, and that is true. I do have a very open heart and that's a great thing and I never want it to change, but it does mean that I make myself vulnerable sometimes and that I'm willing to think the best of people. But heartbreak is such a difficult thing to go through because I do think it's akin to a form of grief. But the person and the relationship that you're mourning is still present in the same world as you are. And so there's a sort of torment to it as well. And one of the biggest examples I had of heartbreak was going through a divorce when I was 35. And that was a real wake-up call for me because I felt so shocked that something I had really believed in was ending in this way. And I felt a great deal of shame attached to it and a great deal of failure attached to it. And surviving that and getting through it and understanding that my loved ones understood me better than I did myself and didn't consider it failure or shame and were there to support me through it was a revelation. And then the third aspect, I would say, that has really fed into my growth and the person I am is my failure to have my own child. And I, I self-diagnose that as a failure. I understand that it's not necessarily my failure. It's a failure of biology and conditioning and all of that. But I've had a 12-year fertility journey, which has incorporated many rounds of unsuccessful fertility treatment and many sort of surgical procedures and three miscarriages. And it felt like a big old battle. And I never realized that I would feel the peace I now feel on the other side of that. So last year I made the decision that it was enough and I just, it was enough. And that maybe my purpose wasn't be, wasn't to be a mother in the biological sense. Maybe actually my purpose was to not be a mother and to speak for those women and men who had tried and not got there, like to speak to that community and also to show up in other ways, to parent in other ways. And that's been a really revolutionary thing for me because it's made me realize something huge about failure. There are two different kinds of failure, I think. There's the common or garden failure where you fail, fail your driving test or that exam that you failed haunts you still. And they're more easy to get over. I mean, it's not always easy, but generally you can, and generally you can learn something from it. And then there's the cataclysmic failure, which is something like a global pandemic or chronic illness or homelessness. Um, and into that category, I would put 
infertility for me. And it taught me that although I will be sad about that forever, like there will be moments in my life where I will feel sadness or grief or loss that can coexist with living alongside it. I can also be at peace with it. I can be sad and at peace. Those two things can be true. And I think that learning has been one of the biggest eye-openers of my life. That it's almost like you can feel two or three things at the same time. Like I feel tired and hungry. You know, it's like, and obviously yeah. they're a lot. Extraordinarily di- different. Extraordinarily yeah. more common than feeling grief and, yeah. Wow, what a, like, peace. Um, thanks for sharing that. That's really, um, very moving. Really, really is. Um, Thank you. Um, the thing thing which came, came to me there is kind of going like, you know, people think that uh, it's our successes which define us. You know, like it's in our common culture of where everyone's, you know, glamorizing themselves with I've I own this or I did that or look at me, I'm here, there and the other. But in my experience, it's um, it's the tough like I too went through a divorce at 34. So I know that was, an ex- oh, that was so that was, similar. Yeah, so so similar. So and I remember it was an extremely difficult situation. Like it's just it's really difficult because you've got this external expectation. We live in a small town. You know, we grew up in a small town. So you feel other people's whether it's right or not. You, I certainly felt the kind of expectation and judgments from others and that sense of shame. And it, it, that that kind of very challenging journey, I think, definitely has made me a much better person, much more. I'm much happier in my own skin as a result of that journey. So I can imagine you having gone through the depths, like the some of the most challenging situations. Like I can I, I, I have so much. I feel very moved with what you just said. And I can only imagine that in that can really bring you to your core you. Thank you. I I'm really sorry for what you went through. Can I ask if you have kids? I have three kids. I have I have from another kid. I, I have two for my first marriage and then I've recently had another one. He's got a little second month old. I've got a five five month five month. Oh, yeah, nearly five, yeah. oh congratulations. And look at you. Yeah. You're dressed and your eyes are open. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I love that look at you're dressed. I am wearing I am wearing two jackets. <laughs> oh, congratulations. That's amazing. You know, I I think you're completely right. We wouldn't have chosen it for ourselves, but it really did strip back all of my previously held certainties about who I was and what life I was going to live. And actually, and at points that felt really panicking. I was really panicked about what I would do next, what would happen, was I doing the right thing? And I learned to sort of allow that panic to come and go a bit like a wave. There was always an ebb and flow to it. And on the other side of that panic, there was also this wide open space. That's what I've been fearful of: was the wide open space that it, I hadn't planned. Were you someone what that was, was constantly in relationships? Someone that went from one relationship to the next relationship to the yes. next relationship? Yes, how, serial yes, relationship. How do you know? Ah, from you know, the age of guessing. nineteen to thirty-six, I was in like a series of wow. back-to-back monogamous relationships. Wow! <laughs> but it really taught me going through a divorce. I was like, no, I haven't been doing this right. And it really taught me so many things about myself that have enabled me to show up as myself now in my current relationship. I I have remarried and I'm so grateful that I have the marriage that I have with Justin. It's a second marriage for both of us. And it feeds into our, talking about gratitude, we're so grateful that we've got this. It's like amazing to get a second chance. And I... And we don't take each other for granted because we understand how easily 
a relationship can sort of derail itself. And and I don't think that I would have understood that had I not gone through what I'd gone through. Yeah, it's almost like if you taste a sweet that you don't like and then you taste one you like, you go, oh, this is so good. Yeah. Like that yes. type of thing. Okay, I got, I got a good, I got, I got a good question. I think, I think opposition. Okay, in modern day society, we celebrate the good things, and it's you know, social media really highlights that and kind of extrapolates yeah. and expands and amplifies it. And if you look at kind of the Stoic philosophy, opposition is an intrinsic part of life, as is you know, the light and the dark. And typically, it's the opposition that forges a much better sense of self at least myself when I'm you know going through a tough time you feel crap and it's difficult but at the other end of it you feel like yeah now I know now I feel more gritty and I know that there's more resilience failure Mm. is often seen as a destination like where do you see the spectrum of opposition of kind of the importance of adversity versus this tagline of failure almost like a destination often like a badge that one has to wear yes so I am a big admirer of the Stoic philosophers and that idea that a diamond is just a piece of coal that's been placed under extraordinary Mm. pressure or it's sort of returned to again and again. I think there are two different things here. So there's the Silicon Valley approach to failure, which I'm not a fan of, which is very much like, yeah, fail fast, break things. (laughs) And it's and it's got attached to this sort of macho vibe that I think can feel quite exclusive and quite intimidating. And I by no means advocate the active pursuit of failure. That's that's absolutely not it. Um, Whereas I think some of the Silicon Valley bros might actively advocate the pursuit of failure because they're thinking, well, we need to get to the great ideas. Let's just like break all of these institutions and get to the better idea. Actually, what I'm saying is slightly different, which is that no matter how much we fear it or try to avoid it, failure is inevitable and it will happen to us all at some point to a greater or lesser degree. And once you realise that, it's quite liberating because you realise then, well, there's no point in living in fear of it. (laughs) That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that it's the thing that connects us all. And there's something so beautiful and powerful about that. I mean, you know this from the kinds of amazing conversations you have on this podcast. Vulnerability is the source of so much shared strength. It is the antidote to all those feelings of isolation, of shame. I'm so passionate about that because there's so much revolution that can come as a result of it. So I advocate that idea of being open about our tough times so that it feels more inclusive and more democratizing for everyone else who you're right, if they're looking at a constantly curated feed of perfection from their favourite Hollywood movie star on social media, you might be waking up and you might have a hacking cough and be living through a cost of living crisis and not know how to put food on the table. And you might feel like such a failure and so alone in your failure. And that's why it's so important for me to have these conversations that that make that person, and maybe that person is you, feel less alone. And like, actually, we all go through this. And the mere fact of surviving something like that, you're so right, is is kind of great. Uh, like you, it might be a horrible experience to go through if you've failed in a way that feels like mortifying and terrible and challenging. It's a horrible thing to go through, but I promise you that just in the act of putting one foot in front of the other, just in the act of surviving it, you have learned something about yourself. And what you've learned is that you're stronger than you thought. So really, the true success is keeping going through that and having faith that this too shall pass. 
Yeah, I like that. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, I'd love to go into, like, you know, you've obviously been in this failure space, and I'm calling it failure space, um, for, you know, your book came out in 2019, you'd been probably contemplating it for a number of years before that, so it's been like, it's been many years where you've been mm. talking about this, thinking about it, interviewing people about it, like, world-class renowned people about their failures, like, which they're renowned for their successes, so uh, if you were able to talk to yourself, your 35-year-old self who had just got, you know, just gone through this divorce... What would you say to yourself about failure? Because, you know, I'd imagine you had a certain thought on failure and now here you are being a, a doctor graduate in terms of failure, yes. like and understanding <laughs> it. Like, what would you say? And th that would be applicable, I think, to everyone who's listening. I think I would say that when life throws you a curveball, it's a really creative space. Sometimes the void is the most fertile place you can be because it's a space where you don't have decades and decades of your social conditioning. In my case, watching too many 1980s rom-coms thinking I'm going to have this happy relationship and I'm going to live a life like my parents lived. That was my conditioning. When that exploded, I'm like in the void now of thinking I just don't I don't know who I am and I don't know what I'm going to do next. And that's when the best ideas happen, weirdly, because that's the fertile space. Where else can you grow into other than the unknown? So I think I'd say you might feel like a failure now and you might feel like your life is derailing and you might feel like you're not making the right decisions or you're not doing the quote unquote right things that you thought you'd be doing. But actually, this is where the growth is. And I promise you that if you accept the curveball, it's going to take you on the most amazing journey beyond your wildest dreams. I think the greater risk is always not going on the adventure. So I suppose I would tell myself that not to be scared of failing, but to take the risk that you might succeed <laughs> in full awareness that if you do fail, if you do fail, you can survive it. But for me, the greater risk is always not taking the adventure. It's funny, there is that fear of success too. Like we have a yeah. fear of failure and also we have a fear of actually being happy, a fear of actually reaching our dreams. And then it's like, what happens then? Because I don't know if you ever watched that show. I haven't watched it, but I like the, the concept behind it. The Weight of Gold, where it's a, it's a documentary about many Olympians who actually reached gold medals. And afterwards, many of them had some degree of an existential crisis. What do I do now? I've worked so many years to reach this gold. I'm going to be happily ever after. And suddenly I'm like, what do I do now? So, yeah. yeah, I guess that's that. I haven't seen that documentary and now I really want to watch it. I love a sporting documentary. They're my favourite kind of things to watch. Dave, um, did you, I, I watched, I watched, I am Bolt. That was very good about Usain Bolt. Oh, I watched that I last haven't week. seen that one yet. Great. I, I watched Netflix. the Michael Jordan one. I love oh, it. Me and my, me and one of my obsessed. kids were loving it. Yeah. Obsessed with that one. The Last Dance. So yeah, good. Oh, fabulous. Um, and I love F1 Drive to Survive, even though I never watched Formula One, but I wow. watched Netflix series. <laughs> Wait, what were we talking about? The way we to go. That's the right. The way success. to go. Yeah. It's just the fear of success as well yeah. as the fear of failure. That it's it's almost like there's this fear of the climax. You feel stuck. Yeah. yeah. Or what happens yeah. after the climax? What happens after it's all happily ever after? They didn't show us all that stuff. Yeah. Interestingly, I've spoken to a few gold medalists, but I've also spoken to Matthew Saeed, who I'm sure you know, is this amazing author and thinker, but he used to be an Olympic level table tennis player. Wow. And wow. he actually competed in table tennis at the Sydney Olympics. And one of his failures was choking 
dramatically at the Sydney Olympics. Having had this incredibly successful table tennis career, it all just went out of the window and he performed really badly. And he had an existential crisis where he was like, well, what's the point? Like, if this, this is the thing that I was meant to do and I can't even do it. And he talked about something called post-traumatic growth, which is that in the darkest mm. moments, the moment's the biggest challenge. It's actually where you also potentially grow the most. And the thing that he kept returning to was, my parents still love me. Like that was the thing that he that saved him during that time. He was like, I've humiliated myself. I've lost this terrible match, but my parents still love me. But success is such an interesting one. And I think my response to that, the weight of gold issue is to have more things in your life than just a singular focus. So mm. we've been quite um, limited in how we historically have viewed success. Success has been made into a sort of capitalist quest to get a massive monetary fortune, for instance, or to become hugely famous and win an Oscar or to win a gold medal. And the problem with that is that the focus is so singular and because you put so much of your efforts into gaining that, that you neglect other parts of your life. And actually, I would encourage everyone to think of success in a more dynamic and fluid way. Maybe success is success in your relationships, like feeling that you have healthy relationships in your life where you can show up as yourself and you feel loved and appreciated and you can give that back in return because that will be the thing that lasts after you get your gold medal. At least you can return to having a thriving family life or having a great relationship with your pet cat. Like that's where you get the nourishment. And for me now, success I'm 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 competitive with myself. I've got a lot of drive and don't get me wrong. Like it, it's nice to be a a bestseller when I publish a book and it, and it's nice to see my podcast episode climbing up the chart, but I understand that that's separate from my identity and that actually the truest success for me is being able to show up as my authentic self, as that kid who didn't feel that she fitted in. Like I can show up as her now and be accepted for that. And not only accepted, but feel like that's a key part to what I do. So the, the me that is talking to you right now, the me that you will hear on How to Fail, um, the me that writes the books I write, the me that's married and the me that has a best friend, we're all the same. Like I don't, I feel like I don't have to put on a mask in the same way anymore. And that for me is true success. You feel mm. more transparent, more integral, more... Authentic. As you said, you're authentic. Exactly. Authentic. Aligned. I think aligned. I'm yeah, very like into word. the idea of alignment no, I like that. at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that a lot. Well, one topic I'd love to go on to, and something I struggle with is criticism. You know, like oh say my God, me too. social media and say things and I'll get like, I'll be slightly kind of like worried or disappointed that I've upset people or people are just angry at me or people don't like me. And Dave, on the other hand, maybe it's through going through the divorce. You're much more comfortable with that. You're kind of like, feck them. You're always going to have people who don't but like it, you. I, and I don't mean feck them, but it's like, as mm. in like, don't worry about it. What other people think about, you know, is is their business. Well, yeah, it's that expression that, yeah, what other, what other people think of you is none of your business. It's got nothing to do with you. It's their own experience and their judgment of you. But anyway, sorry, Stephen was asking you that. Just about criticism. Yeah. How, how do you, yeah. like, uh, as part of failure, I guess one of the many um, bows, what would you call it? One of the many strings of failure yeah. would be criticism is part of it, is, is typically that. And it's something that I struggle with. How do you deal with, like, let's talk about criticism. I, I really struggle with criticism too. 
And in my better days, I think it's because I'm empathetic. (laughs) So I really value the fact that I have empathy and an ability to connect with people. But in order to be truly empathetic and to want to connect with others, you have to have a sense of your context in the world, a sense of what your impact is around you, but also like a a, sk- a thinner skin, like a, a, because you more have to allow, yeah. yeah, you're sensitive yeah, you're more, because yeah. you're allowing things in and you're being influenced by things. And that's a magical, wonderful characteristic, I think. And so the flip side of that is that I will also sadly be more able to let in criticism. So therefore it, the first step is not beating myself up about that. So if I'm taking criticism to heart, that's a completely understandable aspect of my personality. But the second part is I've observed that. So now it's my responsibility to change how I respond to that feeling. And I think I still struggle with criticism, but I've got so much better at metabolizing it. And it is actually partly because of going through a divorce. So I was the one who ended that marriage. And I had to live with a certain knowledge, like me, a, a massive old people pleaser. I had to live in a certain knowledge that there were people in the world who did not like me, did not understand what I was doing. And one of them was my ex-husband and like his friends. And I had to be okay with that because I returned to the fact that I knew I knew the truth. And whatever anyone else projected was because they were coming from a position of partial truth. And I took a great deal of sustenance from that actually. And it got me through a tricky time. So that definitely helped. It was like immersion therapy (laughs) for, for a sensitive people pleaser in the art of criticism and accepting it. And now because how to fail has grown and I have a bigger profile now than I did before, Um, There are a number of key things that have helped me. One is the 80-20 rule. The idea that if 80% of people think you're doing an okay job, that's great. That's a a great proportion. And 20% of people might have mixed feelings or they might dislike it. Now, if your profile gets bigger or if what you're doing gets bigger, the percentages will feel bigger, but actually proportionally they're not bigger. So I still operate on that. If 80% of people more or less think I'm doing okay, that's enough. The second thing I would say is that I totally agree that very often what you might trigger in someone else is entirely to do with their emotional history, the baggage they carry, and something that they have within them. And the chances are they're not going to do the emotional labor necessary to work all of that out, but you don't need to take it on and do it for them. It's a bit like someone saying, I hate your blue hair. And I feel confident in saying, I don't have blue hair. So whatever you're seeing is not an accurate representation of how I see myself and what I believe about myself. And ultimately, it's about having the strength of your own convictions about who you are. And that's a very appealing thing. And to have that strength of conviction about who you are and showing up as yourself, of course, that means that some people will like it some people, but the worst thing is to be so mediocre and so middle of the road 
that people don't have an opinion at all. They're just like, yeah, meh, you know, I'd rather someone had a stronger opinion and that strong opinion be loathing if it means that someone else loves and gets an enormous amount from what I'm doing. I like that you um, want the big emotions. I don't want any of this middle stuff. I don't always. want to be, what, I don't where do you big. want to go for lunch? I don't know. I don't mind. I don't want to be that person. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> the exactly. blue hair. I have a point of view. Yeah, yeah, blue yeah hair. Your great. blue hair line is brilliant. That's great. Cause it's, Do you I know where I got that, that from? No. I got that from TikTok. Wow. <laughs> I can't remember who said it. I was like, that is genius. And a bit like, you know, I love cheese and I love vegetables and I know you two do as well. <laughs> but I, I, it's I, like confession, I, is it? <laughs> oh no, let me just, yeah, aubergine, king of vegetables. I love an aubergine. There are some people who hate cheese or who like hate aubergine. <laughs> and that's just a matter of taste. It doesn't mean that I'm wrong for liking cheese and it doesn't mean that they're that they hate me. It just means they have a different opinion. So that's another thing that's really helped me. The blue hair and the cheese. <laughs> blue hair is a great one, great one. I, I, I'd love to move it back to, because like we're talking about criticism here and I'm I'm thinking of when you talked about your miscarriages, like that is an act of serious bravery to publicly talk about that because that's an area that, you know, most people don't talk about it because it's a deeply, it's a really deep personal thing. And I'd love to understand like how you were brave enough to talk about it and how it was first talking about this because it's there's not a lot of people that I know that are as brave as you talking about it. Well, that's thank you. That's very generous of you. I I understand that a lot of lovely people think it's brave, and I've never considered it so because it just feels natural to me in the sense that I think I've always had this core belief in truth and speaking the truth. Um, and maybe it's because of that childhood that I mentioned, like growing up in a province that was riven by civil war and an understanding that sometimes the most important things were left unsaid or like that, that history can be so traumatic that it's left unspoken or that it becomes warped in some way. It just made me really passionate about naming truth when I saw it. Having said that, it took me a long time to decide to talk openly about my first miscarriage um, for a number of reasons. So I was still married to my ex-husband. Um, I think I went through what I now classify as a period of mild depression, which at the time I didn't realise. I just felt numb. But now I realise that that's what that was. And I was on staff at a Sunday newspaper here in the UK. And I had been trained as a print journalist never to bring myself into the pieces that I wrote because I'd been trained as a news journalist. And then even when I started doing interviews, it was very old school in the sense of it's all about the person you're interviewing, which actually I agree with, but you shouldn't ever use the personal pronoun. Like don't bring yourself into it. It's not about you. It's about you communicating a story to a reader. Um, and then I also had a lot of social conditioning from my own family. Uh, you know, we're very English in many ways, and like we're pretty repressed emotionally. There's that sense of it being shameful and slightly disgusting to share something really personal. And that's a generational thing as well. Um, and all of that was wrapped up in my own feelings about my miscarriage. And I think I'm trying to remember when I first spoke about it. I think it was probably, yeah, it was it was into how to fail territory. So it was several. And had I'm you so considered sorry. it? Had you? Oh, sorry. Had, no, I don't know if you can hear that. It's my husband's FaceTime. No. Um, had I considered? 
Yeah, like, had you consi- and planned that, that I'm going to talk about it or did it just kind of come out, like, out of nowhere? It was just kind of, oh, fuck it, I'm going to say it. Or was it something that you were kind of debating with yourself? It, will I no, won't? No, it kind I won't of came I? out. It kind of came out. Actually, it was... So how to fail, I'm not giving you a very lucid answer, but I promise that I'll get to the point. Um, so how to fail started as the podcast first in July, 2018. And that first season I did, you can still hear the old print journalists. If you go back and listen to it, I'm still scared about putting myself in the conversation. And actually it was listeners. It was the first listeners, the OGs who were like, we like it when we hear more of you. And your interaction with the person you're interviewing. So then I challenged myself to make it into more of a kind of conversational space, which is exactly what podcasting does so beautifully. And I got an enormous amount from that. It was amazing. Like it opened up the guest, it opened up the listening community. So that was happening. And then I wrote a book called How to Fail. And that came out in 2019. And in that book, I wrote a whole chapter about how to fail at having babies. That's what it's called. And that's where I wrote everything that I hadn't realized I'd been storing up for that moment because it felt, you know, I was free of a lot of stuff. I had left that dysfunctional relationship. I had and had enough time to think about it. So I'd had my first miscarriage at the end of 2014. So there'd been like years of percolation of thinking about it. And I knew that not that when I was going through IVF, specifically, and also when I was going through miscarriage, there was nothing that I could find out there that I could reach for, a book or a podcast that would tell me what was happening to me and how to get through these feelings. So I wanted to write that chapter for the me as I was then. And that chapter had a massive impact on my life because it was the chapter that most people got in touch with me about. And I suddenly realised there was this whole historically silent community of people who have been struggling with the same things and who felt so relieved that someone had said it and who for whatever reason didn't feel able to say it themselves and they were really relieved that someone else was speaking for them and I just got a great sense of purpose from that and so I kept on doing it and since then I've I've learned a few things I think I've learned that for me to be of use in what I share I always need to let enough time pass first because quite often my initial instinct is something's happened to me and I I want to share it because how I make meaning of it and how I process my own feelings is to write about it or talk about it and I've understood now that it's always better for me to leave a bit of time so that I can because so that I can speak from a position where I've got through it and I've been able to process emotions a bit and I'm able to offer something helpful but I it's really lovely of you to consider it brave, but I think it's part of my purpose on earth. And I just, it, it comes really naturally to me and I'm really passionate about continuing to do it. I think fair play. Uh, so brave. You. So brave. You. Yeah. Really. And, and one think- thing, one, one thing, even we, on Monday, we spoke with Peter A. Levine, who was one of the founders of Somatic Experience. Like he, I think he spent trauma. 50 years working in trauma and, you know, written so many books on it and total world expert on it. And he was talking about how trauma can only exist in isolation. So by you yes. talking about it, you're allowing this trauma to kind of let this this captured energy out. Exactly. And actually, there's an amazing Johan Hari quote about the opposite of alienation being connection. No, the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And and that feeds into the same idea, like the opposite of trauma is connection. Like that yeah. sense that you can share and release you're so right it's been incredibly cathartic 
for me. And and I also I'm a huge believer in therapy and I still have I have fortnightly therapy and I find that very, very helpful. And it means that it can help me process like how other people respond to what I'm processing. So I love that. I love that quote that I'm going to listen to that episode when it comes out. Yeah, yeah. Cool, yeah. I, I certainly noticed that when I went through my divorce, it took a number of years before I felt comfortable talking about it without that energy in it. You know, without that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, like you can talk about it now and I can feel there's no energy. There's no sense of that shame or whatever me or victim or anything within it. Whereas when I think someone's processed someone, they can talk about it like the same way they're talking about, like, you know, other things that are more normal. Whereas when someone hasn't processed about it, kind of, it comes out with this meek voice and there is that. And I I remembered myself when in the early days talking about, I didn't want to talk about it publicly. I felt there was shame. There was, I hadn't processed it properly, but when I had given enough time that I processed about it, well, then it was like talking about the weather or talking about the trees or talking about what are we going for lunch? Because it was just, there wasn't that, that trauma within it. And also Dave, sometimes we feel like our most personal feelings are just ours because we're big old neurotic weirdos like because we exist inside ourselves so we understand how messy and imperfect we are and we're constantly comparing ourselves to everyone else's externals so we think that they've all got it more sorted but actually my discovery was that something I thought was so personal turned out to be more universal than I ever could have imagined and I think that's something really powerful for anyone to remember that the personal is universal (laughs) and and yeah, that's why we should all get together in a big old group therapy session and just share, 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 share. That's <laughs> it. I really love that. that. So I, much. Lo- I love that. There's a slogan in that too. The, univer- the personal, personal is the universal. I, I, it makes you think. Yeah. It's one of those things that you see and you go, what the hell does that mean? But then when you Only with the context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, but yeah. I think there's, there's and actually of- just on that, on that note, I my latest book is called Friendaholic and it's called Yeah, I want to talk to you about that. Okay. So but just briefly, there's a chapter in that book about being ghosted by someone I would have considered one of my three closest friends. Like brutally ghosted. Wow. Overnight, it felt like to me. And I had so much shame around that. So much shame. And then I was like, no, but if I'm if I'm telling the truth about friendship, I need to write about this because when you're ghosted by a friend, you think I'm ter- I must have done something so horrendously awful to elicit this dramatic response. And so I had to take a very clear-eyed look at myself and my own failings as a friend in that particular situation. And it, the process of writing about it was uncomfortable, but also kind of amazing because there was that sense of getting it down on paper and processing those emotions and releasing that energy. And again, something that I felt such a personal sense of shame over, that chapter has had the most resonance in that book. And so many other people have come forward and said, it happened to me too. And I've never read it put into words like this. And so I'm really, I now know that that's sort of where the good stuff is. It's like where I'm initially, it may be a bit reluctant to go. I should challenge myself to go there. Oh, yeah, it's, it's like so... those hard chats that you don't want to have and you're afraid to have and you go in there going I don't want to do this I do anything not to do this and then you yeah. go and you do it and you go that, I, I remember <laughs> and, and this was even and this is not one of those chats but I remember there was a pretty girl this is back when I was single there was a pretty girl kept coming into the cafe and I was working in the cafe and she came in every day for a week and I was like Stephen I dare you ask her out to her face just go here listen I think you're really pretty I'd love to get to know you can we go for a walk and I dared myself to do it and I did it and she happened to say, yeah, but if she said no, I wouldn't have cared less because I did it. It was like, yes, yes, I did it. You know, it's this release, this Aww. kind of feeling of, uh, I guess, acknowledging your desire and actually being true to who you are. And the outcome didn't matter. 
Is you know she now I mean. your wife? No, no, no. But that was, <laughs> no, that was okay. just. <laughs> <laughs> I know that wasn't the point of the anecdote. That's so sweet. Yeah, 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 yeah you're that. right. Exactly. Because very often we think what we're looking for is a relationship with someone else, but it's being more in love with the relationship with yourself, if that makes sense. So the fact that you would then know that you would be brave enough to take that chance. And to do what you believe to be you true. Something about your, yeah, that's a really lovely thing that you now know, know about yourself, that you have that capacity. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And are you friends with that person anymore? Did, did it ever rekindle? No. Wow. No, um, I, I anonymized it extensively for the purposes of the book, obviously. Um, but the emotional truth is all exactly as it was. And no, I now, well talking about having been a people pleaser earlier, that got me into really sort of thorny territory with certain friendships where, again, I was just like overextending myself in, in this sort of one-way relationship that should be the essence of reciprocity. And actually over the last few years, I've really, I've really understood that a friendship that makes you feel drained or less than or guilty or that you're just not good enough in some way is not a true friendship. No. And we shouldn't... Feel shame about lovingly bringing those to an end or putting them into a different place in our lives. Wow. So, yeah, no, we're not friends. <laughs> can, can you tell us more about this new book? It's coming out in March. It's called Friendaholic, you know, which is a very interesting yes. title. It, what, is that what, a bit like someone who who is, you know, friends are an addiction, a distraction. They're kind of just ca- collecting friends and they need to be yes. busy with their friends as opposed to actually sitting in the void. Sitting in there. Yes, exactly. They nailed it. Um, yes. So it's called Friendaholic Confessions of a Friendship Addict, which is something that I identify as. And it's a splashy title in one sense, but it also has a very serious undertone in that I do genuinely believe that one can be addicted to friendship in the same way that you can be addicted to love in an unhealthy way or sex or codependency. I definitely got an adrenalized hit every time I felt that I made someone like me or that someone wanted to be my friend. And that had its roots in this lonely childhood and feeling like I didn't fit in. And it made me almost manic in my pursuit of friendship because I felt that without friendship, I would be unsafe and alone. And I was scared of the void. And I was scared of that loneliness. And particularly then later on, as a woman who was trying and failing to have children, I was like, well, I won't even have my own children. So I just need to have this like massive, ever expanding group of friends so that I will always be able to shore up that sense of self that I really lack. And that was something that that I experienced throughout my 20s. And I, and I feel ashamed about it now. Like I, I, I do, I feel I, I didn't show up in the ways that I would have shown up in key friendships because I didn't know who I was. And so that's what a friendaholic is. It's someone whose dependency on the idea of friendship means that they actually have misunderstood the true nature of friendship as it should be. And friendaholic was me writing my journey of understanding that. So sort of like, coming to terms with what I had done in the past, but also how to pursue friendship in the future in a more genuine, authentic way. And along that journey, I talked to five of my friends, each of whom represents something slightly different about friendship. And I interview them about what they think. And I also go into a whole like geeky spiral and I look into the academic research and I read Cicero. And it was like a fascinating 
book to research and it taught me so much. And so that's the book in a nutshell. Wow. What are some of the big learnings in terms of friendship? If you were like, you know, obviously people need to buy the book, but even a, even a hook, give us a couple <laughs> of hooks. Give us yeah, a couple right. of hooks. <laughs> well, one of the things that I learned that really blew my mind. So there is an OG of friendship studies called Professor Robin Dunbar, who I am obsessed with. And I love his work. And I'd never actually met him until after the book was published in hardback. And then I met him and he was absolutely lovely. And it's just always oh, nice. so nice. So anyway, he is the professor, a professor of evolutionary psychology at Oxford University. And he spent a lot of his professional life devoted to studying friendship. And he's very well known for coining Dunbar's number. He's one of only 10 scientists ever to have a number named after them, and nine of them are dead. So he's he's flying the flag. And Dunbar's number is 150, and it is the number of connections that he believes a human brain can cope with. And what he means by that is a connection where you know their name and you know a salient fact about their life. And you would invite them to a big party. You'd invite them to a big wedding. And his point is, is that the human brain is not sufficiently developed to have more connections than 150 where those things are true. And it's a number that is replicated again and again throughout history. It is the average size of a medieval village, for instance. It's the average size of a Christmas card list. And it's, it's so interesting because... Beyond that, it does all get a bit unwieldy. And that was a very interesting thing that he developed. But several years later, he finessed that idea of Dunbar's number into the idea of Dunbar's layers, which is the idea that we have friendship layers. So we all have, hopefully, multiple relationships in our life that perform multiple different functions. In the innermost friendship layer, Dunbar says you have space for up to five key relationships because close friendships require time and nurturing. And the fact is that time is finite and we don't have an ever expanding basis of it. So you only have room for five. If you get married or you settle down in a long-term relationship or you have kids, he says that will generally cost you two of those other relationships because you're having to reallot your time. Your time is a very precious resource. Now, that doesn't mean that you then can't have amazing friends in the second layer, the third layer, and it goes up in increments of five. So in your second layer, it might go up to 10, then 15, then 20. It just means that they will perform different functions and you probably need to have those conversations with yourself about how you're going to pursue those friendships. What I had been doing wrong was that I thought in order to be a quote unquote good friend, I had to treat everyone as if they were in that innermost circle. And I obviously couldn't do it. I was exhausting myself by trying. And it meant that because I was rushing around trying to be this mythical good friend to every single person, I was running myself ragged and I was losing a lot of energy and I was exhausted. And that meant that I was resentful and therefore I wasn't being a good friend anyway. And so that was a real light bulb moment for me where I thought, oh, I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> and actually, in order to be a better friend to my innermost layer, I, I actively need to reassess how I distribute the resource of time. And so that's transformed my ideas of friendship. And then the other thing, if I'm allowed another one. Oh, please. Yes. Fabulous. Okay. I'm loving okay. This. The other thing is about ambivalent friendships. So frenemies, those friends that sometimes we have in our life 
who sometimes can be incredibly nice and generous and show up with a potted orchid just out of the blue, but sometimes can be so mean and jabbing and passive aggressive (laughs) and undermining. And very often that's to do with their own stuff and they're having a hard time. And obviously every friendship will have periods of stretch where one person's going through a difficult time and the other person will stretch to accommodate that. But an ambivalent friend is someone who keeps doing that, who just keeps throwing you stuff. You're not quite sure what ball you're going to catch. Those friends are actively bad for your physical health. So there's this fascinating study that has been done by the University of Utah where they strapped people up to blood pressure monitors and they monitored them as they went about their daily business. If those people had interactions with people they loved, great for their blood pressure, very soothing. If they had interactions with people they actively hated, also fine for their blood pressure. It didn't actually affect it. Wow. If they had an interaction with an ambivalent friend where they never knew what they were going to get, it caused a blood pressure spike because of that constant sense of anxiety and calibration. You're constantly having to change and shift yourself in response to what you're getting from that ambivalent person. And these blood pressure spikes can negatively affect the, um, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, they're called telomeres at the end uh, end of DNA strands. So they actually negatively affect your DNA. And again, that was, an, um, that was a, a revelatory thing for me to discover because I think often if you're in an ambivalent friendship, you feel like you're the one doing something wrong, but actually you're just preserving your own health if you dial down the volume on that friendship for a bit. Yeah, good ones. I like those two. They're I great. I love the five. I bet most people listening are going, okay, my five. Who are my five? What do, what or, do I have? Or, you know? or kind of going, who should I relegate? Like thinking of, oh, I've got to relegate a few people. I've, I don't have enough space in that inner one or whatever it is. Oh, you're, no, you're division three now. <laughs> That's what I think. The, the key is you don't have to tell them. You don't have and to promote. tell them, maybe relegate it. Yeah, yeah, but but also, they'll be doing that too, probably subconsciously. You know, you're not going to be in everyone else's inner circle. And that's completely fine. Yeah, you don't want to be, you don't, as you said, time is finite. You've got to prioritize what really And ultimately fills you, up. you need to have yourself in there as numero uno, as in to be a friend for yourself. Ooh, definitely, one, definitely. That is good. And that's exactly what I want people to get from Friendaholic is to be able to show up as a better friend for themselves first, because you're totally right. You can't pour from an empty cup. I see, and I, I think, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go, you go. Sorry, you were thinking something wonderful. Um, I think the other thing that I've realized is that we all have different metrics of what friendship is. So for some people, their most important metric of friendship is being able to play golf together, or it will be going on a monthly mini break with your friend, or it will be, I want a daily phone call. Now for me, it's none of that. It's generosity of spirit. So it's the idea that my friend will be thinking the best of me, whatever the circumstances. And even if I am terrible at getting back to their email or their text message, and even if we only see each other once every three months, I know that we will show up and be thinking the best of each other and be so happy to see each other when we do that we can hit that relational depth very quickly. And that's also been a a kind of mind expanding idea for me. And if your friend, doesn't want the best for you that's not generosity of spirit for me i like that good one here here and i i, I was gonna say um i see like 
you know, you talked about earlier on, you talked about a book launch where there was four people there and four people on the, you know, on the stand or whatever. Yeah. And I looked now and you've got an international book tour coming up in March, which is very <laughs> exciting. I saw events in Australia and one in Dublin, which is very I exciting. I know. And in Derry. Fact, when does this podcast come out? Because mm. I should say when the one in Dublin is. The one in Dublin is remember. March the 20 something in the, <laughs> yeah. I was Good looking at it just there. Yeah. It was in Trafal- <laughs> in Dublin somewhere in in a, in a UCD building. I'll tell you where it was now because I was literally reading it recently. David Flynn, oh, you're very good. This will probably come out I'd say, in the next few weeks. Sean, any idea? Oh, great. Then I can give it a little. Okay. Yeah. What is it? Shawnee's telling us now. Shawnee's just 13th of it. March. 13th of March 13th. in oh, Dublin right. at the National Concert Hall. Ooh, the Ooh. National Concert Hall. Aren't you very sophisticated? My friend used to go there. I and try. He'd, he'd go looking for kind of uh, any. No, I won't say that. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> So yeah, so um, I'm doing Derry on the 12th of March, barely sold any tickets. Isn't that classic? I insisted on going to Derry because I was like, that's where I grew up. I <laughs> want to go. go. I want, they I all love me. I want to just... <laughs> <laughs> they do not love me. They, they never did. <laughs> anyway, hopefully we're about to announce an amazing interviewer. So hopefully that will shift some tickets. Derry on the 12th of March and on the 13th of March, Dublin. I cannot tell you how much I love Dublin. Oh, it's always such a fantastic atmosphere whenever I do anything in Dublin at the National Concert Hall I, I can't wait I think it's if almost time out. Out. are you, you going to interview said, people are you going to interview people at the thing no I'm being interviewed well it's it's like conversations with friends so there'll be an interviewer but we'll throw it both ways and then it opens up to the audience and it and it does genuinely become like a beautiful group therapy session it's always my favourite bit the Q&A that's great fun. It says here in the calendar uh, the 12th or 13th of March, but maybe I'll ask Sarah to put it up sooner. So then it promotes it. I'll ask Sarah. Sarah produce the podcast. Oh, thank you. We'll get up sooner. We'll try to get up in February. No pressure. Yeah. No, well, no, we'll... we'll, And Australia. I saw there's Australia as well. Then you go on touring Australia. I know. Isn't that mad? That's class. (laughs) That's so much fun. It's so much fun. And I have to say, I'm so grateful to Australian and New Zealand audiences because they've been supporters of How to Fail the Podcast since it started. They're like one of my biggest audiences. And this opportunity came up and I just thought, I mean, that sounds amazing. Hell yeah. And I... Will I sell any tickets? And actually, it doesn't matter. I'm going to Australia. It doesn't matter because I'm going to Australia anyway. And uh, I cannot wait. So yeah, I'm doing Sydney. I'm doing the Sydney Opera House. Oh, oh my God. God! Listen, I got to give you a round of applause for that one. That That's is a congratulations. Like flex. Yeah. I'm actually doing the Sydney Opera House on the same night as Taylor Swift is playing Sydney, <laughs> and I think there's a lot of crossover in the audience. So I'm not sure how that will go. Um, and then I'm doing a date in Melbourne and I've never been to Melbourne. So I'm really looking forward to some sunshine and my partner's coming and we're tacking on a holiday at the end. It'll be really fun. Amazing. Oh, Congratulations. Oh, crack. How wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's a fun, it's a fun couple of months coming up. Yeah. Great yeah, yeah, fun. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that that only comes after the, after you've done plenty of hard work. Yeah, that's kind of you to say. I I am a bit of a workaholic, but it's because it's because I love it so much. And then I do think it reaps rewards to put effort in. So yeah, I'll report back. I'll see you in Dublin. Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. okay. Thanks, Thanks a Elizabeth. Thank Cheers. you so Thanks much. Thanks a million. Mind yourself. Bye. 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 While we have you, once a week we write a newsletter. It's called Happier. It's got simple, tried and tested practices to make your life better. 
We include recipes and practices that you can apply on a daily basis to make your life happier. We've had lots of people say before that it's really helped make their life better. So you can sign up on the happypairs.ie, our weekly newsletter called Happier.